Uh, this morning we're going to continue through our sermon uh, in the book of Acts. Um, we will dismiss the kids uh, for Children's Church at this time. And, um, and I'm going to pray for us one more time as we, as we get going here. So let's pray together. Uh, uh, King Jesus, uh, Father in heaven, uh, Holy Spirit of God, um, our, the great triune God, we call on you this morning. Asking for your grace, asking for your mercy, asking for your help. God, we adore you this morning. Um, you are our strength when we are weak. You are the treasure that we seek. You are our all in all. And so we come together this morning um, just acknowledging, God, our desperate need for you. Uh, we come this morning expressing our gratitude to you, the giver of every good and perfect gift. God, that we don't deserve, but you have richly lavished upon us. Uh, and we come together this morning wanting God to just sit in your presence and to um, hallow your name in our hearts, uh, God, with our, with our worship and praise. And so now, Lord, as we, as we look to your word, I just pray that you would uh, prepare us to hear from you. God, you have something you want to say to each and every one of us, Lord. So give us ears to hear what the Spirit speaks to the churches. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 6. Let me invite you to turn there. Acts chapter 6, that'll help you um, follow along as we go through uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one of the pew in front of you. If you don't want to have one at home, you can take that home with you. That's our gift to you. So we are continuing through the book of Acts, and so it's just good to constantly remind ourselves of, of where we are and where we're going. The, 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 the book of Acts is the story of the, of the birth of the church, and Jesus told them what was going to happen, right? He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the same Holy Spirit that we have today, by the way. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, and the bold proclamation of the gospel, we have seen thousands upon thousands of uh, Jews be saved right there within the city of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has come, and we see that the Holy Spirit is changing this people. And, and in many places we've talked about how Luke describes the, the, the nature of the community. It's a beautiful community of love and generosity and self-sacrifice for the good of others. Okay, so what we see there is that where the Holy Spirit is, uh, we see holy people. The Holy Spirit makes holy people, all right? It's a process, um, and sometimes that process is, is slower than we would like, but the sure sign that the Holy Spirit is in you uh, is that the person's life begins to change to be more like Christ. And so the early church is a model in many ways for us, um, but as we've seen as well, that uh, any place where God is at work, there, there will also be challenges because uh, we can't expect the devil to allow his house to be plundered lying down, right? And so he's going to attack. He's going to try to cause dissension. He's, trying, he's going to try to cause mistrust, right? We saw that with Ananias and Sapphira, okay? And we're going to see another example today. And so the church must do the hard work of taking care of problems and addressing issues. And also we're going to see the need of godly leaders within the church who have the spirit and who have wisdom from God 
who are able to handle the needs of the church while enabling the church to fulfill its God-given mission to make Christ known throughout all the world. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we talk about ministry in a movement. Ministry in a movement from Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. If you're able and willing, let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and, and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, and some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat at the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The word of God. You may be seated. Okay, so we're talking about ministry in a movement. And we're seeing some of the challenges that the church faced as the Christian movement grew. And so we're going to look at this under two headings this morning. Number one is that growth demands new leaders to be raised up. Growth demands new leaders to be raised up. And then number two, growth demands courage to speak the truth boldly. Growth demands courage to speak the truth boldly. First, growth demands new leaders to be raised up. So as we uh, look at what's going on here in Acts chapter 6, we must recognize that there were, uh, there were two groups within this early Christian movement, okay? Uh, up to this point, we would expect um, a great deal of unity and solidarity within the Christian movement because at this point, every, the only Christians at this point are Jews. And at this point, it's only Jews who, in fact, live in Jerusalem, okay? So there's a lot of, uh, there's, it's just a big uh, homogenous group, and uh, this is really the first hint of tension uh, that we will see happen more and more as the gospel spreads to, to different kinds of people. That's because that the gospel is for all people. The gospel is for all people, and that's a great and wonderful thing. That's why we're commanded by God to take the gospel for all people, because um, in God's plan, right, there is really one race, there's the human race, and all people are image bearers of God, and so the gospel is for all people, and any person, no matter where you're from, 
no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter what culture you're accustomed to, no matter what language you speak, uh, we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ's blood can forgive you of your sin and bring you into the eternal family of God. The gospel is for all people. But of course, um, the fact that Jesus will save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue means that there will be unavoidable human challenges because, as you know, when you get a bunch of people in a room, you, when you get 10 Baptists in a room, you have 13 different opinions, okay? And that's just, that's typically how it works. And so, and then you couple that with people who maybe even speak different languages, maybe they're different ages, they're from different generations, uh, they're from different cultures, and you get a bunch of different opinions on a bunch of different things. Now, not on the most important things, because Christians will agree, or should agree on the most important things, but on secondary things, it causes, it causes tension and stuff. And so when you get a, people, a, a group of a certain size together, there will be uh, some issues and tensions that need to be dealt with. Okay? In the case of the church in Jerusalem, all right, there was a group of Jews within Jerusalem at that time who were referred to as Hellenists. And the best that we can discern what Luke means by that term is, is simply that it was a group of Jews whose native tongue was Greek, whose native tongue was Greek. And so many probably were bilingual. The, 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 uh, the standard language there of the Jews uh, in Jerusalem was Aramaic, okay? But many of these, uh, there, it's well documented historically, uh, interestingly, that there were many Greek-speaking Jews who lived in Jerusalem around that time. And they, uh, they, they, they lived at par other parts of the Roman Empire, but many of them wanted to retire, if you will, uh, as Jews in the Holy Land and in their holy city. And many of these uh, Greek-speaking Jews were, you would think, you know, well, they, they lived out of Israel for a long time. They might not have been that serious about their faith, but that's just not true. Many of them were very devout Jews, very serious about the law. Okay? But you have this different language, you have this language barrier in many cases within the early Christian church right there in Jerusalem. And of course, the language barrier is a pretty high barrier, right? You typically don't hang out with people who don't speak your language. It's nothing personal, right? But, you know, you just, you just typically don't do that, right? It's hard to communicate with people who don't speak your same language, okay? So the Jews, uh, what we know from this time is that the Jews had a daily distribution of food for the poor for those who could not provide for themselves. And so the, apparently the, the church took that over for those who were member of the church there in Jerusalem. And it seems, uh, we, it seems there that um, maybe initially it was primarily these Aramaic-speaking Jews who handled the food of the daily distribution. And though it was, it's clearly presented there as 100% unintentional, but maybe they were just not as familiar with the Greek-speaking widows and things like that. And somehow or other, uh, the segment of the widows, the Greek-speaking widows, got overlooked. And so... Um, and so this is not super surprising considering that the church in Jerusalem is probably over 10,000 people at this time, okay? And so, needless to say, this causes tension within the church because the Greek-speaking Jews feel like uh, they're, uh, they're being neglected, okay? And so what do they do? They deal with the problem. <coughs> they gather the whole congregation together and tell them to choose men, specifically men who are of good repute and full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. So of good repute and full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Uh, who will uh, be charged with the task to ensure that this, uh, this ministry is taken care of accurately and fairly. And so I, I just want to look at a little bit 
um, what they're, uh, the, uh, how we can examine what, what they're doing here. The first thing we want to look at is the reason they give for handling the situation in this way. Apparently, as we've seen already in the book of Acts, right? Apparently the apostles handled lots of the monetary stuff themselves, right? We saw earlier, right, how Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira in two completely different ways, right, sold property. But what did they do? It says they laid the money down at the apostles' feet. So apparently the apostles were handled a lot of that stuff, okay? But of course, as the church grew, that ministry grew and grew, um, and, what became, and what's clear, right, is that the charge that Jesus gave the apostles, right, was that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the ends of the earth. And so in other words, the apostles specifically had a ministry to, to proclaim the gospel, and what they, they called the ministry of the word and in prayer. Okay, so, so, so prayer and the ministry of the word. And so, uh, so one of the points here is that God gives various people within the church for different ministries. That verse that's in the bulletin there. Um, God, God gives people different gifts for different ministries of the church, and they all are needed, right? Somebody needed to take care of the widows, all right? Somebody also needed to preach the gospel, and neither one needed to be neglected, okay? And so I think one of the lessons for us here is that um, it can be tempting to so prioritize, and this is, what, this is the danger that was happening in the, in the church in Acts there, right? It can be tempting to so prioritize ministry within the membership of the congregation that we end up neglecting the massively important ministry of proclaiming Christ to those outside the walls of the church. And so this is a call, this is a call, and it's a reminder for biblical priority. It's a call to ensure that the internal ministry of the church uh, the, is not neglected while zealously guarding the external ministry of the church. All right? And so, the, and so in other words, you don't, you don't have to choose. You don't have to choose. But I do think we should be aware, and I do think we all recognize, if we reflect on it, that, the, that probably the typical temptation that most churches face, especially when they reach a certain size or reach a certain age, is that you just, and it, it, it you, never happens intentionally, but it happens, and that is you just slowly start turning inward. You slowly start turning inward, trying to take care of, of the machine, you know, trying to take care of the, the internal ministry of the church, and you get so busy with things on the inside of the four walls that you forget those outside the four walls. That's a very dangerous place to be for any church. And so the apostles rightly said, you know what? Any healthy church, right, God's going to gift people to take care of the various ministries. And so, they, they, and so they, it wasn't a question. They just assumed, hey, if, if God wants us to do both of these things, that means God has people within the church to take care of both of those things. And so what we need to do is we need to identify those who can take care of this ministry so that we can take care of the ministry that God has appointed to us, okay? And which was prayer and the ministry of the word. And so that's important. That's the first important principle is to not neglect one ministry over the other. And then the second thing is having rightly prioritized that, that their task, uh, they needed other leaders to be chosen and raised up, okay? Which is why... Which is why every church needs a strong set of leaders who are, full of, who are of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, right? Every church needs those leaders, all right? Every member should strive to be a person like this, right? Who are people who are of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, right? Because uh, 
you know, one person can't do everything. There's, if you talk to any church leader, you read any book about, in pretty much any organization, but, even, but especially even the organization of the church, right? Uh, they always say the same thing. They call it the 80-20 rule. They say 20% of the people do 80% of the work, which typically is true if you think about it, all right? But what we're saying and what we're trying to do at Hillside, right, as covenant members, right, because we're saying uh, that when, as, as members of Hillside, when we sign our church covenant, we, it, it, says th- it says things that like we are agreeing to invest our time, energy, and resources into the life of this church, right? Because we want to we break the rules, right? We want to break the rules so that we can say, hey, every member in our church isn't just a name on a page, but they are actively engaged in the spiritual life of our church. That's what we want because that's what we need, right? If you have a body, you know, if you have a body and your hand stops working or your arm, you ever been sick? You, I mean, some of you are going through things right now, right? When your body isn't working properly, it's, it's, it's bad, right? Well, if parts of the church body aren't, aren't healthy and aren't working properly, it doesn't just affect them. It affects everybody, right? But when the whole body is working properly, when everybody's pitching in, that's when the church thrives and that's when you can, that's when you can run as a church forward to what God has for you. And so, it, 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 and so this is part of it, right? Striving, working to be leaders who are full of good repute, the spirit, and wisdom. And so let's just look at that briefly. Good repute is important because when you step up within the life of a church, naturally that makes you more accountable, right? And so Lead, and so leadership in, in the church, really, they, they are held to a higher standard, right? And so it's, it's, uh, it's not an unbearably high standard. I mean, we're all humans, but at the same time, if you're a leadership in the church, you have to be of good repute because that means that you are held to a higher standard, okay? Um, you know, we've all, we've all heard that story. You know, someone tell, sits down and starts talking and they say, yeah, so-and-so, they did this and that. And you know what? They were a deacon at their church. That's what they say, right? Well, that's just because it, it, it naturally makes sense to us that uh, when you're a leader, you're more accountable, right? And so good repute is important. The second thing they say is it must be full of the Holy Spirit, right? This is, is massively important, right? The Holy Spirit is the sign of regeneration. The Holy Spirit is the sign that you are an authentic Christian, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit is, who, is God who lives in you uh, by his Spirit who is transforming you and who is changing you. Um, and so a person who is full of the Holy Spirit means that they have a life that is demonstrably transformed to look more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's how you know, right? Christianity is a heart religion, right? We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what Christ has done for us. Thank God for that. But at the same time, if you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit you're just not going to be able to live the way you used to live. And so a changed life is the sure sign of the, of the Holy Spirit at work in you. And especially in the book of Acts, being full of the Holy Spirit often means that um, it is people who walk with a boldness and courage for Christ in the world. And so to be full of the Holy Spirit means to, to walk in your faith every day, to be unashamed that you belong to Jesus, to walk in holiness and love and to not be ashamed of what you believe 
and be willing to speak boldly for the cause of Christ. And then, of course, the third thing that they say is that they must be wise. And so wisdom is that element uh, where a person has discernment and the sense of the right thing to do in various situations. Okay, because the way life and the way church works typically is that you end up in situations that you didn't anticipate. Did that ever happen to you? And you need wisdom from God. All right, so that's what these leaders are. Good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and wise. And we have uh, many such people in our church, which I thank God for, and I pray that God would give us more. And maybe that, maybe God is um, burdening your heart to get more involved in this church. And there are needs to do that. There, there are needs and opportunities. I can think of two right off the top of my head, okay, uh, that we have talked about in the past. For example, um, I believe our church could really benefit from a security team. I was talking to a brother about this this morning. But every, lead, every ministry needs a champion. And so maybe there's someone in this church who feels called to help just keep an eye on things and to help us develop some protocols so that we can take care of our kids, take care of our children, take care of our members in a day when anything can happen in a church building, right? You need, they need to be a person of good repute and of Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, right? Maybe God will raise up someone like that in our church. I would love to see our, our, our greeting ministry and our welcome ministry thrive. We have some help there, but it needs a champion. It needs a, a leader, and maybe God's calling you to do that. You know, there's different ways that, that people can serve, uh, you know, that, that are, are vital to the life of this church. And God's gifted everyone differently, and that's a wonderful thing, you know. Um, you know, some people, you know, I mean, some people, you know, uh, that you, might, you, might, you might not like to shake hands with people and talk to people. Uh, uh, some people, you can, you, can, you can talk to a wall. Hey, that's a gift, y'all. And, um, and we need both kinds of people in this church, right, to minister to the different needs. Uh, while I'm at it, let me just keep going. Um, the greatest gift that God gives churches, I'm just going to say it, is babies. Let me say it again. The greatest gift that God gives churches is babies. I believe in babies. We're about to have another one. Okay? The greatest, one of the greatest things that you can do for the kingdom of Christ is to love a baby in Jesus' name. It's not a joke. It's dead serious. We need, we need people to love babies in Jesus' name. Exercise your gift. Use your gift. You will find more joy. You, God will get more glory, and, and, his, and his name will be glorified in our church as we exercise our gifts in love. Number one, growth demands new leaders to be raised up. Number two, growth demands courage to speak the truth boldly. Growth demands courage to speak the truth boldly. So in the next part in chapter six there, right, you have Stephen, right? So Stephen was mentioned as one of the, uh, the, the seven who was appointed to that task. But we also see that, that Stephen was not just a leader within the church, he was a leader outside the church. He was preaching the gospel, okay, uh, and he found some opposition as he preached the gospel. It says there that um, there was a synagogue, uh, it was called the synagogue of the freedmen, of the freedmen. And so most likely what, that, what was happening there is that it probably was, from what we can tell, because uh, most, uh, most of the guys who... Uh, these, these seven guys who were chosen to deal with this problem with the Hellenists, right? I, I, it seems that they themselves were Hellenists. They all, have, they all they have Greek names. And so they probably were Hellenists, which means they probably spoke Greek. 
uh, there's this Greek-speaking synagogue, which probably means Stephen was a Hellenist, which means he probably spoke Greek, and it, and it means Stephen was probably preaching Christ in this Greek-speaking synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen. Okay? And so as he preached Christ in that synagogue, there rose up people who were disputed with him. All right? But it says in verse 10 that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so they stirred up people, men, uh, to basically to slander Stephen, to lie about him, that he was speaking blasphemous things, okay? Uh, and which ultimately leads to <coughs> um, Stephen's arrest, okay? So as we look at what's happening here, um, you have this Greek-speaking synagogue, okay? And... Um, as we said before, there was many Greek-speaking Jews who lived in Jerusalem at this time, okay? And they consisted of Jews from all over, and he lists the places there. Uh, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, Cilicia, uh, people from Cilicia and Asia. Asia would have been modern-day Turkey, okay? Um, and what's interesting here, if you look at this list, is that most likely, and, and I, I, I didn't know this, I learned this, but it's probably, it, it, it's a probably strong likelihood that Paul, you know, or Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, probably attended this synagogue, okay? Because Paul probably knew of Stephen's preaching for himself because Paul was there when Stephen was stoned. And it said that the people who, uh, you remember it says that the people who stoned Stephen, right, they put their cloaks down at Saul's feet because he approved of the execution. And Saul, uh, Paul was a Greek-speaking Jew, so he was a, a Hellenist. Um, and also, it says there uh, that some of the people were from Cilicia. And so again, most likely, the best, probably the best way to understand this is that the people who attended the synagogue were from all these different areas. One, one place that they were from was Cilicia, and Paul was from Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. So you put all that together, and Paul probably went to the synagogue and heard Stephen preach and was among those who probably disputed with Stephen himself. And later, when Stephen got stoned, he was right there giving his thumbs up. Okay? And so, uh, but we see that Stephen there spoke, and it says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so, um, what we see then that Stephen showed his leadership not just inside the church, but also outside the church, right? Which means that if you are walking in the Holy Spirit, you will be a consistent person, right? I think that's a lesson from Stephen, right? He was, uh, if you're walking in the Holy Spirit, you're going to be the same on Sunday morning that you are on Friday night, right? You tracking with me? Is you're going to be a consistent person within and without the church. Stephen was a leader in the ministry of the church, but he was also a leader in preaching the gospel outside the church. Okay? And notice there that they couldn't withstand his speech. Uh, and I think, that, I think that there's a lesson for us there. They couldn't withstand, it says, the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You know, as Christians, right, we, we want to think that if we spoke with the right spirit, and if we spoke with perfect wisdom, that everybody we would talk to would get saved. Right? That's what we want to believe. But what do we have here? We have the example of Stephen, who it said, who clearly is being presented here as speaking with great, a, a great spirit, with great wisdom, and yet they still didn't believe. All right? And so I just think that's important for us to remember, especially today when there's lots of 
challenge to our faith to remember that we, we want to think, man, if I just spoke in the right way, if I just had the right spirit, the right wisdom, the right words, everyone, will like, everyone would like us, everyone would be persuaded. But there's two dangers with that kind of thinking. Um, the first is that it's just simply not true. Right? It's just simply not true. All right? You can speak in the most loving, eloquent, winsome way possible, and, and there will be people who still will not believe you. They still will not believe you. Okay? And, 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 and so, because the issue, right, is not just one of sheer argument. It's not, the, the issue about Christ is not just one of sheer argument, right? If it was just about argument and logic, Stephen would have converted everybody in that synagogue. But it's not about argument, okay? They couldn't refute his words or his logic. They couldn't even defute his demeanor, right? We can't say that Stephen was being mean or bad or rude. I mean, it literally says there that as he was speaking, his face became like the face of an angel. All right, so they literally had like an angelic being preaching the gospel to them, and they still rejected it. Okay, why is that? It's because unbelief is not merely an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual and moral problem. Unbelief is not merely an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual and moral problem, right? This isn't trying to say anything you know, bad about unbelievers other than the fact that they're an unbeliever because the fact is, is, is at some point in our lives, we were all unbelievers. And at that point, before I came to know Christ, you know, I was raised up going to church. You know, my problem, my problem wasn't I didn't know enough about Jesus. My problem was I just didn't want to follow Jesus because I wanted to do what I wanted to do. That was my problem. All right, it wasn't an intellectual problem. It was a spiritual problem. It was a moral problem. I did not see at that time that Jesus would make me happier than my sin. I did not see at that time that a life for Jesus is better than 10,000 lives for sin. And so that's the great tragedy, right, of unbelief. Is it's, it's, it's when we are in unbelief, we're choosing ourselves over Jesus. And, it, and it's a tragedy because we're, we're missing out on the eternally meaningful life to the one who knows us and, and made us and knows the greatest cries and deepest longings of our hearts. <clears throat> and so it's not true that if we're perfectly winsome, we'll persuade everybody. And the second danger is that if we believe that lie, uh, the temptation will be to try to be winsome at all costs. And that doesn't work either. You know, sometimes... I think there's a temptation. I just think, you ever been in a situation where um, somebody tried to say something and then you bought into it, and then it wasn't anything like they tried to make it out to be? All right, I had a, and I'm not going to share this. Anyways, it's called a bait and switch. All right, bait and switch. Look, we don't want to bait and switch people into Jesus, okay? Jesus, Jesus, there are, there are unbelievable, incomparable blessings for knowing and following Jesus, both in this life and way even more so in the, in the life to come, okay? That's without a doubt. But at the same time, right, at the same time, Jesus never, I mean, he, he wants people to follow him, but the portrait in the Gospels is Jesus, Jesus isn't getting down on his knees and just begging people to follow him. In fact, he tells people, hey, look, 
if you want to follow me, you better count the cost. Because you know what? If you follow me in the short term, your life might get harder, not easier. So in other words, I don't want to bait and switch people into believing Jesus. Yes, it's true that, that there are infinite blessings in following Jesus. But it's also true that uh, Jesus said that if you want to follow him, then you got to do something. you got to deny yourself. Get on up on a cross. Die to yourself and follow him. All right? And so, in other words, I don't want to bait and switch people into following Jesus. I want them to know that Jesus is worth anything that you could obtain in a thousand lifetimes. And yet, at the same time, at the same time, you know, he's, going to, he's asking all of you for all of him. Okay? And so, we don't want to bait and switch people into that. We want to tell the truth. We want to tell the truth in love. We don't, want to lead, we don't want to lead people to believe in something that's not true or, or, or a watered-down version of the truth, okay? And so, know what they did to Stephen here, right? In verse 11, it says that they slandered him, all right? We heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Uh, they said uh, that Jesus said he'll destroy this place and change the customs and so on. <laughs> now, Luke explicitly says that these were false witnesses, Okay? They were lies. These were slanders, okay? So, today, if you watch the news, which I don't necessarily recommend, but you watch the news, probably the most common to our shame and to our shame, the most effective type of argumentation today has a fancy term. It's called ad hominem arguments. If you don't know what an ad hominem argument is, an ad hominem argument is where when you're in a debate of ideas, you stop debating the ideas and you start attacking the person who's holding the ideas, okay? And so in other words, when you can no longer defeat the idea that is being debated, when you can't counter the arguments being made, you have to attack the person making the arguments, okay? That's the only way that you can do it. That happens a lot today, right? Rather than saying, Oh, rather than saying, well, that's a bad idea, this is a bad idea, what we say is, those are bad people. So we shouldn't follow their ideas. Right? But those are two different ways. Those are two different, different things. Those are two completely different things, right? It, I mean, if you think about it, strictly speaking, right, there could be a, there could be a bad person who has good ideas because the, the quality of the idea or the truth has nothing to do, really, with the person who's, who's, who's saying it, all right? So, but in our human fallen condition, right, it's, it's tempting to say, well, I'm not going to listen to them because they're just bad people. All right, it's called an ad hominem argument. When you can't defeat the idea itself, you dissolve to slandering the one who's defending it. That's what they did with Stephen. They couldn't win in an honest debate, so they had to create lies to shut him up, basically. All right, and of course, they're not idiots, so what they do is they create believable lies. Believable lies. Uh, did Stephen speak blasphemy against the law? Did Jesus say he was going to destroy the temple? No. No, but it was a believable lie because Jesus did say something about the temple. Right? You remember? Jesus said that the temple, Jesus didn't say that he was going to destroy the temple. Jesus basically said God was going to destroy the temple. Why? Because if you read the Gospels pretty carefully, I think what clearly Jesus is implying there is that uh, that generation, J Jesus called them a wicked 
an adulterous generation. Why? Because, as Stephen will say in his speech, which we'll talk about next time, right? Because the Jews had this inexorable problem of always rejecting the people that God would send to them. And their climax of their rejection was they didn't just reject the, the prophets, they rejected the greatest and latest prophet that God sent to them, God's own son, Jesus Christ. And by rejecting the, God's own son, Jesus Christ, God would bring a, a, a cataclysmic judgment upon the Jewish nation by destroying the city and the temple, which did happen 40 years after Jesus' death, as he foretold would happen, by the Romans in 70 AD. Okay? And so, so it, it was a believable lie. Okay? Uh, did Jesus come to change the traditions? Well, no. Jesus had a high view of the law. Jesus said that, that, um, uh, that not a jot or a tittle of the law would pass away, that the scripture cannot be broken. And yet at the same time, it is true that Jesus came to bring in a new covenant by his blood. That's what he said. And the new covenant would come and fulfill the old covenant so that the old covenant would be no longer binding as such on God's people because Christianity would fulfill Judaism in the sense that it would become the religion uh, that God intended all along, right? Christianity uh, is preeminently a heart religion, right? It's a heart religion. So it's not merely one of external confirmation, but one of internal transformation. Let me say that again. Christianity is a heart religion, not merely one of external confirmation, but internal transformation, okay? What that means is that as Christians, we are no longer commanded to keep the dietary laws and things like that, all right, as the Jews did. So in a sense, Jesus did change things, but not disparaging the law, but in fulfilling the law. In other words, Jesus was saying that these Old Testament laws were pointers to something greater than themselves, right? As Christians, right, we understand and believe that we are saved not by what we do, but by what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so you can attend church all you want. You can read the Bible all you want. You can get on your knees and pray all you want. But if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ and are living a life of faith and love and obedience to Jesus Christ, then you're not saved. Because why? Because it's not about external behavior, external confirmation. It's about internal transformation. Jesus said that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. A transformed life is the sign that we've been saved by Jesus. Right, and so, and so. The point here is that there, Jesus, it, they they made believable lies. Okay, they made believable lies, and they slandered Stephen because they couldn't refute him. And so the so what we see here this morning is that the growth of the church brought internal and external challenges. Right, anytime an organization or movement grows, as it grows it comes with more challenges, right? Growth is a good thing, all right? But as it grows, it comes with more challenges. As the church in Jerusalem grew, it faced internal problems and it faced external problems, right? You, there's going to be more tension within and there's definitely going to be more tension without, okay? That's not a bad thing, but it's a thing that the church must, must strive for, must, 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 must work against, must strive to solve and to deal with. Within the church, it means raising up leaders, right? 
and, and, and problem solvers and people who can step in and meet needs so that the, 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 the external ministry of the church isn't neglected. And outside the church, it means being, it means being holy, humble, but also bold and courageous as we bear witness for Christ, right? We can't confuse, we can't confuse opposition with we're doing something wrong, all right? Because that, that's really tempting, right? We're tempted to think, well, if we, if we hurt so-and-so's feelings or so-and-so left or they don't like me anymore or whatever, that we're doing something wrong. Well, maybe, but maybe not, all right? We have to be faithful to the Scripture, faithful to God, love people in Jesus' name, proclaim Christ, and as we do, you know what? God's going to work. God's going to work. And, and, and you know what, guys? I'm, I'm, more, I'm more hopeful for the future of our church than I've ever been. I really am. I think God, not because not we deserve it, but because God is great. And he wants to make his name known. And God is glorified through a strong and healthy church. And so I believe 100% that no one wants a vibrant, strong, growing Hillside Baptist Church more than Jesus Christ. And I think if we just humble ourselves before him, cry out to him in prayer, step up in leadership, be bold outside these four walls of proclaiming Jesus, God is going to do things that we can't even ask or imagine. Let's pray together. King Jesus, thank you for this morning, and um, thank you for your love for us, which we don't deserve, but you have given to us freely. And so, Lord, it, it's, it's that love, it's the blood of Jesus that we plead over our church this morning, that your hand would bless us, God, for your name's sake, that your, that your name would be magnified through Hillside Baptist Church, God, that that all Dodge County and that all the world would know that there is a God in Eastman, Georgia, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Lord, I do pray uh, this morning that within the sound of my voice, God, maybe there's someone hearing, even now, who hasn't truly surrendered to you. God, they haven't been filled with the Spirit. They, they, they were just like all of us were before we came to know you. They, right now, haven't truly turned from their sins and trusted in you. God, I pray that you would help them to see what, what took me so long to see, that you're better than anything this world has to offer. And that one lifetime for you is better than a thousand for sin. And I pray that right now in their hearts they would cry out to you to have mercy on them, to forgive them of their sins, to fill them with your Holy Spirit, and to transform them to live a life that will matter for eternity. That's the gift, God, for those who believe in you. And so, Lord, we offer to you ourselves this morning you are our all in all. We offer to you a sacrifice of praise. But even more, Lord, we offer to you ourselves, God, a living sacrifice to love you, to love people, and to make disciples. And it's in Christ's name we pray.